Today's scripture reading comes from Exodus chapter 16. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger." Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer, according to the number of the persons that each of you has in, its, in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, it's my pleasure now to introduce our speaker for today, uh, Pastor Matt Terrell. Uh, Pastor Matt is a campus minister for RUF, Reform University Fellowship, which is the college ministry of our denomination. If you've been at Exilic for a while, you know uh, Matt very well because he's someone we continue to invite back because he's a dear friend and we love his ministry and his preaching. He even preached for us virtually, I believe, when we were doing the, the recorded services. He preached for us then as well. Uh, I'm so encouraged by him. I love his preaching. Every time he preaches, I'm encouraged by it. Um, he is not only a, a pastor, but a proud husband and a father to three children, which, which, which makes him A-OK -okay in my book. Uh, so I'm going to invite Matt up now. Let's, let's welcome him. Thanks, brother. It is really good to be with you. Uh, my family, actually, that we worshiped with you it was like two weeks before the world got turned upside down uh, in like February of 2020, not knowing what was going to happen. And this is the first time we've been able to be back with you in person since then. So it's really a privilege and a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, would you pray with me and then we'll, we'll dig in together. Father, we thank you that you are the God who speaks. You're not just the God who has spoken and then closed his mouth, but you are speaking now. Life into your world by your word and by your spirit. And we ask that you would do that. As we turn our attention to your word and consider it, would you open our ears to hear what you have to say? Would you 
Soften our hearts that we might actually receive and delight in what you would speak to us this, this, uh, this afternoon. It's in Christ we pray these things. Amen. So a number of years ago, I was listening to a radio essay, which is like a podcast before podcasts were a thing, um, a long time ago. And it was, it was about the fall of the Berlin Wall in Germany. It was kind of a retrospective looking back on how things changed when the wall came down and communism in, uh, in Germany was defeated. And they were interviewing a man named Holger Teschke. He's a, a German writer who grew up on the east side of the wall, so on the communist side of the wall. And uh, he said something really interesting. He said that after the wall came down, the people in East Germany who had grown up in this very highly restricted communist side, they did not know what to do. He said they actually had to learn how to be free. Like the wall was down, they had freedom that they previously could not have even imagined. It happened sort of overnight. And, but they didn't know what to do with it. So like for the first time in their lives, they could sink their teeth into a Big Mac or drink their first sip of champagne because they didn't have that. They could write what they wanted to write. They could say what they wanted to say. They could do all these things. They could go visit family across the border that they couldn't get to before. And they had all of this freedom, but, but Teshka said that none of it was automatic and none of it came naturally. They actually had to learn how to be free. And the reason that I mention that is because the story that we just read, we actually got plopped down right in the middle of the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. And the book of Exodus is a story of freedom. It's a story of freedom. Right before the verses we just read, here's what happened. The people of God have been toiling in slavery for 430 years in Egypt. And at long last, God has like dramatically, miraculously rescued them. They're, they're actually, at this point, at, right before what we just read, they're being chased they're leaving Egypt and they're being chased down by Pharaoh and his army. Their oppressors are running after them and they get cornered. They get trapped. And on one side is the Red Sea. There's nowhere for them to go. And on the other side, Pharaoh and his army are coming after them and they're stuck. And so what God does is he actually blows apart the Red Sea. They walk across on dry land and they get to the shore on the other side and they turn around and they see Pharaoh and his army trying to come back through the Red Sea where the waters have been parted and then the waters begin to crash over them. And their enemies are swallowed up. And they're standing there on the banks on the far side of the Red Sea and they just break out into spontaneous song praising God for his work of redemption. That's what happens right before what we just read this morning or this, this afternoon. And these events in the book of Exodus are actually so foundational. They're so key that the authors of the New Testament look back on the book of Exodus and they go, this is one of the primary paradigms through which we're going to understand through which we understand what it means to be a Christian. That several times the writers of the New Testament, they reflect on the book of Exodus and they go, look, this, if you want to understand Jesus, you need to understand it through the lens of what happens in Exodus. So it's just sort of a side note as we begin, whether you have been a Christian for a really long time or whether you're coming to Christianity just sort of investigating, asking questions, Exodus is a great place to start. Because it's giving us language and framework through which we understand Jesus and his life and his death and resurrection. And what we just read comes right on the heels of all of that dramatic deliverance. The defining redemptive moment of the Old Testament. God's people have been set free. And so we get to chapter 16, what we just read, and the question that's hanging over it is, now what? Now what? We've been rescued 
We've been redeemed. That's incredible. But now what? And you may have wondered this too. Okay, pastor, I'm a Christian, or I'm thinking about becoming a Christian. I'm investigating. Now what? If I trust that Jesus has dramatically and miraculously rescued me, redeemed me from sin and death through his own life, death, and resurrection, that's amazing. But once I receive that gift, like, now what? What do I do? And the answer that we get from what we just read is that we have to learn how to be free. We have to learn how to be free. And there's a surprising place where this learning how to be free happens. It's the wilderness. Did you notice that this is where the people of God are? They're in the wilderness. It's a place of desolation, a place where they wonder if even their most basic needs will be met. Now the Israelites, the text tells us they're they're just a mere 45 days removed from all of that redemption, from all of that rescue. So they've been out of slavery for like six-ish weeks. And this is now the second wilderness that God has led them to. The second place of desolation. He keeps leading them into these places where food and water and shelter are scarce. And they're tired. And they're hungry. And they're grumpy. And I would be too because it's not what they want and it's not what they expect. But this is exactly the place where God teaches his people how to be free. It's the wilderness, the place where we wonder if even our most basic needs will be met. Now, why is that? Why is this the place where God teaches us how to be free? Um, Three things happen to us in the wilderness. This is your outline this afternoon. If you're an outline person, a revealing, a refining, and a response. That's where we're going. Just mark that in your head if you're not taking notes, and that's fine. Um, So let's start with the revealing. There's an old hymn. Uh, by John Newton called I Asked the Lord. And I I still remember the first time I sang it uh, because it it was such a jarring text to sing through. And the first stanza goes like this. He says, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. So Newton is saying, I went to the Lord in prayer and I was asking him, help me grow. Help me to deepen in my faith in you. And what Newton goes on to write is that the answer that God gave to this request almost drove him to despair. It almost drove him to despair. Why is that? See, Newton writes that he'd hoped that God would answer this request by subduing, what he writes is subduing his sins and giving him rest. In other words, taking away his struggles. I'd hoped that God would would make Uh, my faith deeper by taking away the ways in which I struggle, but that's not what God does. Newton writes, instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. The hidden evils of my heart. The path of growth for Newton was for God to lovingly but painfully introduce John Newton to John Newton. That the way that God caused him to grow was to reveal to him the hidden evil that had been lurking in his heart all along. And this is what God does to us in the wilderness. This is what happens. He uses the desperation that we feel in the scarcity of the wilderness to reveal the hidden evils of our hearts. Look at verse 3 with me. It says, The people of Israel said to Moses and Aaron, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. 
when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now remember, the Hebrew people just watched as God blew apart the Red Sea so they could walk across on dry land out of generations of oppression into slavery and freedom for the very first time. And in a matter of weeks, they've turned against him. In a matter of weeks. In fact, they've completely inverted reality. Did you catch that? They said they wish God had killed them in Egypt because Egypt was keeping them happy and fed. Egypt. Egypt. Who enslaved them, who took advantage of their women and murdered their sons. They were for us, is essentially what they're saying. And God, who heard our cries and rescued and redeemed us through the plagues and the Red Sea and crushed our enemies, He is against us. Hidden evils. And this is just the echo of original sin in the Garden of Eden. The evil one, he whispered to Adam and Eve. Did God really say that? Is he really for you? Can you be so sure? Because if he was really for you, would he have placed this restriction on you? Would he have kept you from this good thing and we buy it? This is what sin does always in us. It plays on the hidden evils of our own hearts, our natural inclination to invert reality and believe that God is against us and not for us. And we see this inclination in our hearts most clearly in the wilderness when we don't get what we want or when we can't see a way out. When we, when we don't get what we want, I deserved that promotion. I cannot believe that bozo got that promotion instead of me. I've worked so hard God, how could you let this happen to me? Or I, I prayed and I prayed for her to be the one. How could you let another relationship slip away from me, God? We see this most clearly when we do not get what we want, but also when we can't see a way out. Some of you are facing truly scary things right now. A dreaded diagnosis, a marriage in crisis, the looming threat of racist violence against you or against those that you love, the heavy grief of miscarriage or infertility, financial ruin, crippling anxiety or depression. I mean, we could list so many things. So many things that we can't see our way out of. And often when we can't see a way out, we have legitimate concerns. I don't want to minimize any of these things. These are legitimate concerns. And here in this text, the people of God have legitimate concerns. They are in a seemingly impossible situation that they can't see their way out of. They stand there in the desert, in the wilderness, numbering in the tens of thousands, perhaps even in the millions. Even a lush landscape would struggle to feed that many people for even a short amount of time. But they're in the desert, and they're hungry, and they're thirsty, and they're going, okay, like what? What are we going to do? They have legitimate concerns. But the natural inclinations of our hearts is to take a legitimate concern and instead of crying out to God for help, we invert reality. We accuse God of being against us and the very one who is our rescuer we accuse of being our enemy. And this is what happens to us in the wilderness. We find ourselves inhabiting a place of desolation, a place of lack. And the hidden evils of our hearts are revealed. But this is not without a purpose. It's not without a purpose. God uses these revelations in the wilderness to refine us. 
to refine us. He, he uses the emptiness of the wilderness to train our hearts to actually let go of our inverted re- view of reality, to refine us. The, the hard truth is that in the wilderness, we have none or at least very few of the things that we want, but everything that we need. Theologian and counselor Dan Allender, he, he puts it this way. He says, our spiritual journey must, be le- must lead through the desert. It is in the silence of the desert that we hear our dependence on noise. It is in the poverty of the desert that we see clearly our attachments to the trinkets and baubles we cling to for security and pleasure. The desert shatters the soul's arrogance and leaves body and soul crying out in thirst and hunger. In the desert, we trust God or we die. So it's only in the wilderness that we can finally see the emptiness of our chosen distractions, our social media feeds, our sports obsessions, our cherished daydreams about the life we wish we had. It's only in the wilderness that our favorite shiny objects, clothes, grades, vacations, success, attention, are seen for what they are, earthly treasures that one day moth and rust will destroy more friends, more followers, a different spouse, a different house. All these things are a mirage in the wilderness. I am constantly having to repent of believing the lie that a bigger paycheck and a bigger ministry and, uh, and a bigger apartment would solve all of my problems. It's a mirage. It's a mirage in the wilderness. And in the discomfort of the wilderness, as we grumble because we're not getting what we want, want, we're actually given the chance to cling to God alone as the one that we actually need. And God says right here in verse 4 that this is intentional. It's actually by design. That he leads his people, he's led his people into the wilderness to test them. To test them. Now, this is not a test to disqualify them or to like prove their worthiness of his love because they've already been the recipients of his love. He's already rescued them out of slavery. He's already given them a new identity as his cherished and beloved people. So it's not to, to prove their worth. It's a trial to transform them, to refine them. Think about it this way. Think about how you strengthen a muscle. I don't know if any of you, I don't even know if Pastor Aaron is still doing these, but for a while he was doing leading workouts online or on Zoom on Monday nights. Did any of y'all ever go to those workouts? A few of you, maybe? No? Okay. Well, he probably isn't doing them anymore, but for a little while he was leading those workouts and I went to some of these workouts and they were brutal. They were super intense. And they were designed that way because he was trying to stress our muscles in order to help them grow. That's how you have a muscle that grows, right? You have to push it. You have to add more weight. You have to add more repetitions. You have to push your body so that like you can't lift any more weight and you feel like, oh no, I might not be able to walk to the subway tomorrow because of what I just did to my leg muscles, right? But that's when you know that you've actually put your muscles in a point where they can grow, where they can become something stronger and sturdier. And this is what God does to us, in us, in the wilderness. He tests us to transform us to refine us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, We do not lose heart because our current suffering, now keep in mind, Paul suffered a lot. Shipwrecks, beatings, betrayals, I mean, all manner of persecution. 
He says, we do not lose heart because our current suffering is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond comprehension. It's an incredible statement that our suffering makes us ready for glory. And glory simply means weight, means substance. And, and what Paul is saying is that God leads his people into the wilderness to transform them into people of weighty substance, people of glory. He leads us into the wilderness to transform us into people who aren't so easily tossed about by the shifting winds of our own desires. When your every move is calculated by what will make you most happy or most comfortable, like when, when your mission is in life is to follow your heart, is you do you, you aren't actually free. You're not actually free. You're enslaved to chasing comfort and pleasure, however you define it, and any hint of discomfort or disappointment will actually derail you. It will fill you with anxiety. It will fill you with dread because your life, it has no substance. It has no weight to it all on its own. You're in like a codependent relationship with your circumstances. You have to have what you want in order to have weight and substance in your life. But life with God in the wilderness, it actually refines us. It trains our hearts to let go of fleeting comfort so that we can instead delight in God for his own sake. Not going to God for what we want him to do for us, but going to God to enjoy him for his own sake. And so, as we do so, we become people of substance, weightier, freer. We can sacrifice our own comfort and our own happiness so that other people can experience wholeness. We can disappoint someone in order to love them well. We can stand firm in the face of temptation. We can be gentle in the midst of persecution because we know that we belong to a God who will take care of our every need even if we can't see how. And ultimately, what Paul is saying is that this refining turns us into people of such substance that one day we can stand face to face with the majestic King Jesus and comprehend the incomprehensibility of his resurrected glory. That is what happens in the wilderness. In the place where we have none of the things we want but everything we need, it's the place where our loves are refined and we learn the freedom and the joy of knowing that when all we have is God, we have all we need. We sang about this just a little while ago. To be satisfied in him, all of you, is more than enough for all of me. And so God reveals the hidden evils of our hearts so that our loves can be refined. And he does all this, lastly, through his response of grace in the wilderness. How does God respond to the complaint of the Israelites? They're grumbling. They're accusing him. How does he respond? Verse 4 says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to reign. And then we need to pause. Because we have to remember, they've just watched God rain some stuff down in Egypt. But it was not pleasant. They watched God rain down gnats, and frogs, and locusts, and hail, and blood, and death in Egypt, in judgment on Pharaoh's rebellion against him. And then they grumble against him in the wilderness, and, and God says he's about to rain something down, and you can almost feel Moses wincing, like bracing for impact. What horrible thing is about to come? But what does he say? 
Behold, I am about to rain down bread from heaven for you. Bread. What, I mean, what incredible grace. God's response to all their sin is to graciously, patiently meet their need every day for 40 years. This is how long the Israelites wandered in the wilderness, and every day God met their need with fresh manna on the ground. And what is he doing in that? Every day he's showing them, you you wake up, you look outside your tent, you see the manna on the ground, every day he's showing them, you can trust me. My grace will never run dry for you. My mercies are new every single morning. Friends, are are you doubting today? Have you failed today? Did you have something new that you needed to confess? I did this morning when we were going through confession. Are you struggling? Have you grumbled, complained? Have you accused God in your heart of being against you? There is fresh manna on the ground for you today and every day. New mercies every morning. How can we know that? How can it be that he would have boundless mercy for people like me, people like you? After Jesus was baptized, Mark's gospel tells us that immediately, one of Mark's favorite words is immediately, immediately after Jesus was baptized, the Spirit led him into the wilderness. So he goes from the height, from the joy of having the Father's love confirmed over him at his baptism. He hears the Father's voice out of heaven, you are my son, with you I am well pleased as he's being baptized and the Spirit descends like a dove upon him. It's this beautiful moment. And then immediately, he's driven out into the wilderness. The Spirit leads him to the desolate place. And in that place, he is tested. The evil one comes again and he whispers that same old lie. Is the Father really for you? How could you be so sure? If he was really for you, then why are you so hungry? Why don't you just turn these stones into bread? If he was really for you, then why don't the kingdoms of the earth already bow down to you? If he was really for you, then why can the kingdom only come through your suffering? Jesus was tested for you in the wilderness. But when he was tested, there was no hidden evil lurking within that needed to be revealed. Instead, it is his beauty that is revealed. He never grumbled. He never complained. He trusts his father's provision, even when it means that he's hungry and he's homeless and he's hated. He was tested. And he doesn't do this as some like detached, distant, stoic, gritted teeth, tough guy. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, it says that in the days of his earthly life, Jesus prayed to God with loud cries and tears. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus learned obedience. Now, let's be clear. Jesus was always without sin. That's not what the author of Hebrews is saying. But there was something deeper There was a deeper trust, a deeper delight, a richer reliance upon his Father's love that Jesus had to learn through his own suffering. Jesus, in his human nature, was refined through suffering for you, even to the point of death. But even in the desolate wilderness of the cross, 
Jesus, we see him entrusting himself to his Father. As the Father condemns the Son in our place on the cross, Jesus is still clinging to the Father's words. He famously cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is a direct quotation from Psalm 22 in the Old Testament. But do you know how that psalm concludes? Toward the end of that psalm, I'll read it for you. It says this, For he has not despised the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. So here's what Jesus is doing. The Father is turning his face away from Jesus, pouring out his wrath for sin on Jesus for the first and only time in the history of the cosmos, and the Son is praying, Jesus is praying through a psalm that assures him that his affliction and his suffering will not get the last word. Even in his darkest moment, he is clinging and trusting himself to the Father's word, certain that one day he will eat and be satisfied under the smile of his Father again, even if he cannot see a way out. In every place where we fail, Jesus succeeds. In every place where we fail, he succeeds. And this is why Jesus can say in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever feeds on me will not hunger. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died, but I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This Jesus, the one who gave his flesh, his very body, as your spiritual food, will never run out of mercy for you. Never. If his life and death and resurrection become your spiritual food by faith, you will never be hungry again. You will actually be free. You will be fully alive, even in the desolate place of the wilderness. And this is how we grow as Christians. This is how we learn to be free. As God lovingly introduces us to ourselves, he reveals the hidden evils of our hearts. He refines our loves so that we learn to cling to him and he teaches us to to rely on his fresh grace every morning. Two very quick bits of application and then we'll close. The first is this. This is daily work. It's daily work. I have a mentor who says that we are spiritual hummingbirds, not camels. Like we can't just drink and drink and drink a whole bunch at once and then draw off of that for a long time. We need to go, we're like hummingbirds. We need to go back for the good stuff all the time, every day. And we see this here in this text. The Israelites have to actually pick up the manna and eat it to benefit from it. It does them no good to wake up and look outside their tent and see the manna on the ground and go, oh, that's nice. But they also can't stockpile it. It'll go bad. They have to go out every day and take it and eat it and take hold of it. It's daily work. But even this is a grace. Because the truth is, we're not very good at learning to trust God. And so every day, God is inviting us, come, come, rely on my grace afresh every day. And so my encouragement to you is to spend at least a few minutes every day feeding on Christ through his word. Meditate on it, chew on it, think about it, talk about it, pray it until your heart is hot because your soul will starve without it. So that's the first thing, it's daily work. The second thing is, this is communal work. It's a group project. We have to do it together. The Israelites went out and they gathered manna together. 
Verse 16 tells us they weren't just supposed to get an individual portion for themselves. They actually were supposed to gather as much uh, for the people in their tent. It was something that, that happens as a community. They were responsible for one another. And what that means is that you and I, we cannot survive the wilderness alone. You need friends, trusted friends, to whom you can bring spiritual food and from whom you can receive spiritual food. Parker Palmer puts it this way. In our private lives, we need safe relationships in which we can explore our inner turmoil, small-scale communities where we can get help from others in naming our illusions and absorbing and transforming our suffering. In other words, we need trusted friends. You need trusted friends who will lovingly help you reveal, expose the hidden evils of our hearts and wander with us in our sufferings in the wilderness. This is how we grow. This is how we learn to be free, daily feeding on Christ in his word, together in the wilderness. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this incredible good news that where we fail, and we fail everywhere, that where we fail, Jesus has succeeded mightily on our behalf. Our victor over sin and death. Would you teach us to rely on that, to rely on him as our spiritual food in the wilderness of everyday life? It's in Christ that we pray these things. Amen.